0: Alright, if we can uh, take a seat, we'll we'll make a start. Well, I didn't plan it this way, but this week we're finishing Exodus, if we get through what I've got prepared here. For the last oh, 40 weeks, we've been going through the book of Exodus, one chapter usually about uh, per week. And we've seen lots of exciting things happen where the Israelites come out of the land of Egypt. At Mount Sinai, they give them the Ten Commandments, and God gives them the instructions for the tabernacle, and and we learned about the mercy seat and all oh, the the altar of incense, which is prayer. The mercy seat is atonement; it's is a picture of Jesus standing between, making a covering over the law, which was in the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat sits on top of that, and then we have the glory of God above that, and we learned about the principle there is that we can't be directly exposed to God's glory because we're sinful and so we need to be in Christ. We're coming to the last chapter so if you turn to, not the last chapter but the last section, um, Exodus chapter 35 in your Bibles Let's pray. Father I thank you Lord for this awesome book that you've allowed us to, to study and we've got so much from and we just pray that you'll help us to continue to understand and continue to grow and and to apply the truths that we get from this book, the book of Exodus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at chapter 34 and a quick summary. Uh, We saw the glory of the law is fading or temporary, but the glory of the new covenant is eternal. We also saw the reason as to why God wants us to obey his commandments. It's so we will remain in his presence meaning that we will be continually empowered by his Holy Spirit to love others as Christ loves us and to obey his will for our lives as demonstrated by Moses when he interceded for the Israelites. One of the highlights of the book of Exodus for me was when, "Blot my name out of your book. If you're going to not be with the Israelites, your presence won't go with them. And blot my name out of your book. He was willing, like Paul, to give up his own salvation for the sake of these people. That's how much he loved them. And I just want to read a verse we read last week and it talks about why we need to obey the commandments of God. It's not about being legalistic, it's not about having to do as you're told. It's about remaining in God's love and remaining in His presence. So this is from the Amplified Version, John fifteen nine to 13 It says, I have loved you just as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love. Continue in His love with me. If you keep my commandments, if you continue to obey my instructions, you will abide in my love and live on in it, just as I obeyed my Father's commandments and live on in his love. I have told you these things, that my joy and delight may be in you, and that your joy and gladness may be of full measure and complete and overflowing. So that's the reason. Why does he want us to obey him? That? His joy and delight may be in us, and that our joy and gladness may be a full measure and complete and overflowing. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love, no one has shown stronger affection, than to lay down or give up his own life for his friends. So, I don't know if you've realized it, but it's impossible to love others the way Christ loved us unless we have the Holy Spirit empowering us and giving us the strength to do that. In other words, it's Christ living in us, Christ working in us. So let's jump into chapter 35 in Exodus. So it says, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. So what we're coming up to is a period of building. They are going to build the tabernacle. So we spent several chapters, and uh, quite a few weeks, going through all the items they needed to build, what they mean, how they symbolized Christ, and, and what they had to do with Jesus and pointed to Jesus. Now it's time to actually do the work. So before God tells them to do anything, he's reminding them to rest in him and to respect the Sabbath. Today, what does it mean for the Christian to enter into God's rest as pictured by the Sabbath rest for the Israelites? So Hebrews 10.12 tells us that because Christ finished his work of redeeming us when he died on the cross, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and being seated means that he is resting. The work is complete. So when you get home from work, you sit down and you rest. You're not working anymore unless you're working on a computer or something. that <laughs> another picture of rest in the Bible is God creating the world in 6 days and resting on the 7th and that's the, the another picture here. So Hebrews, 4, 10, Hebrews 4:10, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 invites us to enter into God's rest, which means to cease and desist from trying to do things on our own strength, power, intellect, smarts, effort, cunning, wisdom, resources, knowledge, relationships, money, etc., okay? So Hebrews 4:10 says, "For he who has entered his rest, it's God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his." So we need to stop striving on our own strength and start working with God's strength. God living through us. God working through us. If we are not doing things by our own efforts or works, then it must mean that it is the power of God working mightily in me. And if the power of God is not working mightily in me, it means that I am living by my own effort or strength. So this is a moment-by-moment choice I must make. Trust God or trust me? Rely on God or rely on me? Am I going to remain in his presence, abide in him, or am I going to do things on my own? One of my favorite verses is this one. It's Second Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. It says, again, the Amplified Version. Not that we are fit, qualified, and sufficient in ability of ourselves to form personal judgments or to claim or count anything as coming from us, but our power and ability and sufficiency are from God. Verse 6, It is he who has qualified us, that means making us fit, to be fit and worthy and sufficient, as ministers and dispensers of a new covenant of salvation through Christ, not ministers of the letter of legally written code, but of the Spirit. For the code, the law, kills, but the Holy Spirit makes alive. We do things by the power and the ability and sufficiency which come from God. We can't do things on our own. Jesus said in the Gospels, without me you can do nothing. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. Now, commands. It sounds a bit strong, doesn't it? You know, We don't want to be telling people, God commands you to do things. But, yes, they are commands. And the good thing about that is, God's commands are His promises. God will always give us the power and strength to do what He commands us to do. So the Ten Commandments aren't the Ten Suggestions, they are the Ten Commandments. And the same with all the other instructions that we have in the New Testament. You know, give thanks and, and pray continually and all those, all those other instructions that we have in the New Testament, in the, in the epistles and the gospels. So why, you know, sometimes we, we think, oh, I don't really feel like doing what God wants me to do today. Well, God has the right to tell us what to do because he owns us. He bought us and redeemed us with a very high price, his very life. And this is what being a Christian is all about surrendering our will to His, being willing to obey God and trust Him that what He is asking us to do is for our best, and believing and remembering that He loves us and would never hurt us, and also remembering that we are His bond servants, which means we are servants for love, for life. We serve Him because we've chosen to be His servant. That's what we do when we become a Christian. We become a bond servant, a servant for love, for life. But all those commands are impossible to keep if we are not abiding in Christ because our human nature, by nature, hates them and wants to break them. So we don't want to obey what God tells us in our human nature. Little quote up here. But what we so easily forget is that God has already given us all the power and ability and sufficiency that we need to obey Him, to do what He calls and commands us to do, to live a life that is full of blessing, love, and joy. We must make a moment-by-moment choice to abide in Christ, to remain submitted to Him and obedient to Him, and continue to trust Him, believing in His goodness toward us. Or we can doubt Him and try to do God's work our own way, or not do it at all. And both will lead to disappointment and failure. And as Peter said, we are partakers of the divine nature. God hasn't left us here, as Jesus said, as orphans. He has given us a spirit. So the same principle holds for our walk with God. Anything we do for the Lord must grow out of our rest in Him. That is, we rest and allow Him to work through us. We must learn to rest in his finished work on the cross on our behalf. And we're going to see this in action in, in Exodus 35 with God calling, equipping and enabling specific people with the power of the Spirit to do specific work that he has asked each individual to do. In their case, it was to build the tabernacle and all the associated furniture. God is reminding them that it's all by his anointing, his skill, his strength, his ability and his power and that without him the task would be impossible. So let's um, continue in Exodus 35, the second half of verse 2. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. That's the Sabbath. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So for the Israelites, we're not the nation of Israel, by the way, we're the Gentiles, the penalty for violating the Sabbath command was death. And how true that is. Whenever... I don't take advantage of the opportunity to be in the Lord's presence, to be refreshed and renewed. Something within me dies. Remember that Jesus used the vine and the branches as a metaphor to describe our relationship with him. If the branch is disconnected from the vine, it will start to wither, and so too with us. If we do things on our own strength, it means that we are not living by God's presence or power in our lives. We are, in a practical sense, disconnected from Jesus. And so the power, love, and life that comes from being depended upon and connected to and in the presence of Jesus will start to wane, to dim, and to die off. Uh, verse 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. This next sentence is really really important it says whoever is of a willing heart let him bring it as an offering to the lord we're going to see this um word this w word this willing word uh, quite frequently in this chapter whoever is of a willing heart let him bring it as an offering to the lord and this is what they were to bring gold silver and bronze blue purple and scarlet thread fine linen and goat's hair Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All verse 10, All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars and its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat, and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, all its utensils, and the showbread. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. The incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar or burnt offering with its bronze grating. You get the picture here, there's a lot of things I have to make. And uh, we've been through all of these one by one, so we're not going to actually go through the next few chapters and read it all again. We're just going to summarize it here. Start at 16 again. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and its all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, the sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. That's a long list of things to make. So the main point, though, I want to bring out here is whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering to the Lord. So some people say give until it hurts or give because God will reward you, but that's not the Lord. If it hurts to give, then don't. Because Paul tells us that the Lord loves a cheerful or literally hilarious giver in Second Corinthians nine seven. And as Jesus sat against the wall of the temple, we are told that he watched not what people gave, but how they gave. And that's Mark twelve forty one. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, because when I give cheerfully, I am freed from my fleshly, selfish, small tendencies, and I become more like him in the process, more unselfish. And that's why Moses asked only for those with willing hearts to give. So how much would those willing hearts give? Well, by today's standards, approximately $1 billion worth of gold and silver alone, plus all your precious stones. So we're not going to read the chapters where it actually lists how much gold, how many talents of gold, how many talents of silver, how many talents of bronze, how many talents of iron. But if you, if you do the math and you work out how much weight that is, it's over a $1 billion worth of gold and silver in today's currency so it's it's a lot of money it's a, it's a very generous heart that the people had so verse 20 um, and all the congregation of the cho- children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses so this is good this is a good example for us they heard the invitation they had a project before them and they departed Moses didn't pass the basket right then he didn't ask for an offering right then he didn't pressure the people he didn't try to manipulate the situation. He just said, go home and think about this. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have an offering. We just have a tin at the back and, and if people feel f- want to give, they can. And uh, it takes away that pressure of giving and the expectation. So Exodus 35 uh, 5, t- verse 21. Then everyone whose heart was stirred, notice that, whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a, what is it again, a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red, red skins of rams and badger skins, brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun, of blue, purple and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. So it's not just giving their the money and their wood and their jewels and their gold and their silver, they're actually giving their talents as well. What they're good at, they're using for God's service. Now this all took about six months. This didn't happen in one day. So whatever you're good at, whether it be weaving or in today's economy, it might be mechanics, or carpentry, whatever, use it for God's glory. Use it for God's kingdom. Verse 27, The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones set to be in the ephod and in the breastplate. And spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were, again, willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. So again, I just think of that verse. Um, Jesus said it's more, or Paul said that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the leaders didn't merely say, I'm glad the people are giving. You know, the leaders sat back and just watched the people give. No, the leaders gave the most. The leaders gave the most valuable things, the jewels and things like that. And that's the way it should be. Any elder, deacon, preacher or pastor should be the one who leads the way when it comes to giving. Lead by example. Verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. So, Bezalel. Was given wisdom, anointed, and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do practical construction. So it's not just, uh, you know, as we often think of for gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, but we, are gift, we are, and need to be anointed by God to do any kind of work for His service. And in verse 34, and He has put in His heart the ability to teach. Notice this is from God. He has put in His heart the ability to teach in him, and Aholiab, the son of Azizmak, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. So if you've got a talent, whatever it might be, God's given it to you and just try and figure out where God wants you to use it. Now this is important. I, I I see this as a picture of discipleship. God gives us a talent, and like-minded people come along with that same gifting and we or, or talent, and we can work with them to encourage them to develop that talent. So it's, it's like an apprenticeship, but we do it in the church. And now we go into chapter thirty-six. Uh, we're not going to read much in thirty-six, only up to verse eight, and then we're going to skip to the end. And Baziel and Aholiab and every gifted artesian in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So they've started working. Verse 2 Then Moses called Baziel and Aholiab and every gifted artesian in whom the Lord had put wisdom everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. These two guys were given both the ability to do the work, but they also had to be available. It says they came. They were called and they came. So if we want our life to be impacting, the key is to have both ability and availability. There are people who have great abilities, but they're never available. God's given them a talent, but they don't use it for the kingdom. So when there is work to do, when opportunities open, when needs are presented, they're just not around. But these two guys, Bazil and Aholiab, go down as in history as models. Their names recorded in it for eternity as men who used the practical gifts God had given them for his glory. And we need men and women today who say, I can't preach or sing, but I can fix an engine. I can't teach, but I can pour cement. So... We need you. Make yourself available, and your name will be added to the list of people who God can use. Verse 3. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Remember, there's like two million people, so this is a slow process. Then all the craftsmen who were doing the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for the work to be done indeed too much. So God gave the people this willing heart, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave, and Moses says, stop, we have too much for the work. That's the difference between making people feel obligated to give versus allowing God to work in their hearts and them giving freely. Right now we're going to skip down to chapter 40. You can imagine in your mind's eye that there's six months of hard work. And it goes through each of the items and it goes through each of the parts of the of the tent and, and all those things and the labor. And it gives you all the dimensions again. But we've already read that. We've already covered it. It's basically a repeat. So I'm going to skip it. And we're going to go to chapter 40, verse 33. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar. So the work is finished and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. It's a big job, but Moses finished the work. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting. So here we have the Shekinah glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord. And Moses was not able to enter Because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it would have been amazing to watch. I imagine it to be this really, really bright light in the tabernacle, and people just falling, not falling down, but just worshipping in awe. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey, Till the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So remember, the the cloud and the fire represent the presence of God. And God's presence is with the people. The tabernacle is set up inside the camp. You had like um, three tribes going out in north, east, west, and south, and. Basically, is made the picture of a cross, and in the middle of the cross, because the tribes were different sizes, there was a tabernacle in the middle. And so, God has answered Moses' prayer that God's presence would go amongst the people once again. He was in the middle of the camp because last week or the week before we learned that Moses had to, because God was angry with the people, God had to move his Moses moved his tent a long way from the camp, and God met him outside of the camp. But now God is meeting the people inside the camp again. So Moses' intercession was effective. Now, the pathways of Bible studies, conferences and camps are strewn with good intentions of people who began to do something but never finished. (laughs) And how I pray we could be those who say, Lord, by your grace, help me to finish what you have called me and gifted me to do. Because this is really important. It was only after Moses finished the work that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I've got a quote here from Chuck Smith. It says, With the cloud being above the tabernacle by day, when you would walk out of your tent, you would be looking toward the middle of the camp and you would see the cloud resting on top of the tabernacle. And you would be reminded that God is at the center of our life, at the center of our nation. That would be nice if he was for Australia. At night, if you walked out of your tent, you would see the fire there over the tabernacle and you, you would be reminded again of God's presence in the midst of his people and how God is dwelling among his people, that he's at the center of our life and the center of our national life. No wonder the children of Israel were blessed by God with God at the center of their national life. Oh, Would to God that we could have that consciousness of God dwelling with his people, God at the center of our lives, God at the center of our corporate life as the body of Christ, as believers together, as one in Jesus Christ. He is the center. He is the focal point of the church. We should all focus on him, for it is through him that we're all made one and brought together as one. So That's a good prayer for our nation to have Jesus as a focal point because at the moment he's not Now I just want to focus just to finish off on verse 33 Verse 33 says and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung the screen of the court gate so Moses finished the work So this is a as I said a very large project Now what does the writer to the book of Hebrews of the book of Hebrews say about Moses, he says in chapter 3, verse 5, Moses was faithful in all his house. In other words, he was faithful in all that he did. He finished what the job that God gave him to start. Noah is the one who was faithful to finish a difficult task. 100, 120 years it took Noah to build the ark. And I'm glad he did. That's why it'll be quite wet. Um Nehemiah, another Old Testament hero who was faithful to finish the task which God had given him. Now, following this is talking about Nehemiah. Following the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah was the man sent by God to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. But when he arrived, there was lots of opposition. For example, Tobiah and Sanballat said, "Even if you do finish the wall, if a fox walks on, top of, on the top of it, the whole th- wall will fall down." You'll see that in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. In addition, Nehemiah's own helpers, the tribe of Judah, you know, of the nation of Israel, came to him and said, This job is too difficult. But the word says that Nehemiah set his mind to the work and continued on. He didn't give up. And realizing that the war was going up, Tobiah and Sambalat changed their tactic and sent messengers to Nehemiah saying, Meet us in the valley and let us talk together. And what did Nehemiah say? I will not leave the task the Lord has called me to complete. I will not be distracted. And that's Nehemiah 6.3. And a short time later, a man in the temple sent a message to Nehemiah saying, Come into the temple and let us seek God together. But perceiving that something was wrong, Nehemiah said, I'm not going to the temple, even though it's seemingly spiritual, because the Lord has set before me a task, and I will not leave. Nehemiah 6.11. And within 52 days, the wall was completed because God honored Nehemiah's tenacity and anointed his perseverance. So, 52 days to build a wall all around Jerusalem. And it was full of junk and broken stones and all that kind of stuff. That was no, nothing short of a miracle. So Moses finished the work. Noah finished the work. Nehemiah finished the work. And lastly, I want to use one more example. Paul, 2 Timothy 4, seven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh, sorry, there is one more. One more person I'd like to refer to. Jesus, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now I just want to think about that phrase. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. When Jesus died on the cross, there were still people. Who needed to be healed? There were still people who needed to be taught. There were still people who needed deliverance from demons. There was still a lot of work to be done. But Jesus always ministered or served according to the direction of his Father rather than according to the needs of those around him. So if you just do everything that you see that needs doing, then you're going to get burnt out. So when his mother said, oh, you need to do something at the wedding there in Cana, and his brothers told him that he should go to the feast in Jerusalem, he was able to say, my hour is not yet come with confidence and serenity. He said, I don't have to do that. Come quickly, said Mary and Martha. The one you love is sick, talking about Lazarus. And what did Jesus do? He waited, because that was God's plan. Their brother died, and their father worked a miracle when he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. That's John 11. So Jesus always moved in obedience to the Father's directing and in his timing. And so although there was still much more to be done in the eyes of men, he was able to say he had finished the work his Father had given him to do. So, how about you? Do you know the work God is calling you to do? How are we going to finish the work God has called us to do if we don't know what it is? I'd like to just to give you three points to finish off. Receive direction from God daily. Here, Jesus is the, the key, the, the example, I should say. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is ministering all day long. He taught the word, healed the sick, delivered the oppressed, and the whole city was outside the door where he was preaching. What did he do the next morning? He was so tired, he slept in and had a well earned break. Is that correct? No. The Bible records that he got up a long time before daybreak. He went into a solitary place and he prayed. Every day, every morning, he would pray. And someone said, If we don't capture the day in the morning, we'll be held captive by the day as it unfolds. We'll find ourselves influenced by events, confused by opportunities, pressured by demands. Therefore, I believe the Lord wants us, morning by morning, and maybe even with a pencil and paper in hand, say, Father, what do you want me to do today? And his answer might be something as simple as write a letter to your mother or text a verse to your friend. We need to stop and ask, I believe, because we just slow down a bit in the morning and the direction might come later in the day, but the fact is we're open to him, we're listening to him. And the Lord then has the opportunity to lay on our hearts specific things He wants us to accomplish. And then we can do His work. Now, it's important that we take the time to reflect upon God weekly. This is what the Sabbath is for. Now, it doesn't matter what day you have for your rest, because some people have to work Sundays. Jesus said in Mark 2.27, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. The Sabbath is for, or this rest, is for our benefit, for our well-being. If we set a day set apart, one day a week, to concentrate on the things of God, to meditate on the Word of God, to reflect on where you've been that week and where you're going the next week, you will find that the other six days will be more productive than if you had sought to squeeze in some extra hours of work. So the Sabbath provides the perfect opportunity to slow down physically, to tune in spiritually and to be refreshed mentally. Now, the last one is seek specific vision from God periodically. For me, this is important when we, God called us, my wife and I, to go to America for Bible college. We had to set aside a specific time to go and seek God's will regarding this big decision. So Moses was able to finish the work of the tabernacle because he knew precisely how to build it. And how did he know? Well, he spent 40 days on Mount Sinai in fasting and prayer and God laid out a perfect plan for him to follow. And we say, I wish God would give me a blueprint. If he would give a plan to me, I would follow it. But do we take 40 days to seek Him for it? (laughs) How about four days? Four hours. How many people have spent four hours seeking God's will? Just just by themselves, just, just praying, reading the Word and just asking God to reveal. Fasting is also helpful in seeking God's will. Paul, he spent three years in the deserts of Arabia getting the divine pattern for his life. Jesus spent 30 years tuned in to the Father before he started his public ministry for three years. So we need those times when we seek God fervently and expectantly. And one more example before I finish is Habakkuk. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. This is a good example of someone who wants to know God's will. Habakkuk's name means wrestler. And he was wrestling with this situation that he was in. The Babylonians were coming in. And he's saying, why are the Babylonians coming to judge this our nation? They're worse than we are. And he's seeking a vision, understanding from God over this issue. And oh, just three things here. The first characteristic of Habakkuk is determination. He didn't say, I should stand upon my watch or I'll think I'll stand upon my watch, but I will stand upon my watch. And God declared in Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So back to Habakkuk. As it did for Habakkuk, there must come a point in our lives where we are determined to seek the Lord if we truly expect to hear from him. Secondly, we see the importance of isolation. We need to be away from distractions. The phone, the radio, the TV. All those things. So wherever your high tower might be, wherever
1: your place of solitude is, where you can be away from distractions, that's where you need to be. And finally, we see Habakkuk's expectation. He didn't say, I'll watch to see if God will speak to me, but I'll watch to see what God will say to me. And in the book of Hebrews, it says, And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So when we come to God, we must come with faith. And James, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So, basically, if I approach God but don't expect to receive from Him, I won't. So, determination, isolation, expectation... These are the three components that must become a part of my life. If they do, I'll find direction. Now, if you drop the ball, if you miss opportunities, if you fail, don't stress. Just go back to the cross and ask for forgiveness and try again. Father, I just um, thank you for the, the guidance you've given us here. Moses finished the work. And we see that Moses had to first hear from you to see what the work was to do and, and wait until He got a complete revelation and uh, of, of what the work was and help us to be patient help us not to get a glimpse of what you want us to do and run ahead and do things in our own way, in our own strength but Lord to wait upon you and to, and just to see exactly what you want us to do and do it in your time and in your strength and I pray that at the end of our lives we can say like Jesus and Paul and, and what was said about Moses and Nehemiah and, and Noah, we can finish. I've finished the race. I've finished the work that God has asking me to do. God has called me to do. Lord, help us to set aside that time and you to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your work for me today? Pray that you reveal yourself to us. You reveal your will to us, and you help us and you empower us to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, Amen.